Welcome to Tell Me More, a podcast series featuring distinguished visitors to Tufts University who share their ideas, discuss their work, and shed light on important topics of the day. How much credit should political advisor Karl Rove get for Donald Trump's White House win? In 2016, Rove, the man who helped architect George W. Bush's successful gubernatorial and presidential campaigns, gave candidate Trump a lesson on how he did it. In this episode of Tell Me More, Alan Solomont, the Pierre and Pamela Omidyar Dean of Tisch College of Civic Life, asks Rove how that fateful conversation affected Trump's campaign strategy. Rove, who served as Bush's senior advisor and deputy chief of staff, also talks about how the Republican Party has changed since his time in the White House and what kind of Democrat could beat Donald Trump in 2020. Let's listen in. Let me get right to it, if I may. Sure. President Trump, I understand, asked your advice during the 2016 election. (laughs) That's one way of putting it. (laughs) Well, okay. Um, He wasn't president yet, so maybe you'll be able to talk a little bit about your meeting and how much credit you can take for his win. Well, I can't take take any credit for his win, but this is at the end of May 2016, when he'd be secured the Republican nomination, but hadn't yet become uh, the nominee. And... uh, uh, a mutual friend called me and said, you know, that Donald has going to be the party's nominee and you've been critical of him and he'd like you to write something nice about him. <laughs> My Wall Street Journal called me. This happened on a Wednesday. He didn't afternoon. ask you to write something about Joe Biden. No, no. Uh, but he said, uh, I said, well, as a matter of fact, uh, you know, it's Wednesday. It was Wednesday afternoon. I said, I'm in the final stages of editing my piece for the Wall Street Journal. Let me read, let me read it to you if you like. And so I read him the piece. And he said, oh, great. Trump will love that. He will love that. And uh, the next morning he called me and said, Trump is furious with what you wrote. And, um, and um, the, our the mutual acquaintance said that uh, he told Trump he was just trying to give you good advice. So long story short, a few days later, received an invitation to meet with Trump, in, which happened in New York shortly thereafter. And I, I said to our mutual friend, I said, I don't, you know, look, I write the column. I'm not in the advice-giving business in presidential campaigns. He says, well, you've been in it twice. You've won twice. He wants to know how you want it. So I, I said, look, on that ground, I'm not going to show up tell him how to run his campaign, but I'll tell him the big decisions we had to make. And, of course, the most important and the biggest decision that you have to make is you have to decide how you're going to get to 270 in the Electoral College. So our, our conversation started off with that. And, um, you know, I said in 2000 we had to, you know, we had the traditional battleground states, which are different than they are today. Mm-hmm. I mean, Missouri was a battleground state in 2000. It had historically been so, no longer. But it was really Florida, Pennsylvania, if, and Ohio. Right, Florida, Pennsylvania, Ohio. And whoever won two out of the three would become president. Well, that, that assumed that, th- that states like Missouri and Colorado uh, would, would, and Nevada would go to the Republicans. Okay. So it gets to be a very complicated, and the, and the whole purpose of my meeting of that point was to say, it's a complicated puzzle and you better have a way to get there and several ways to get there. For example, in 2000, people forget this, but we had four states that had voted twice for Clinton-Gore, were historically Democrat, and we had to win every one of them. Arkansas, the home state of the sitting president, mm-hmm. Tennessee, the, the, the home state of the Democratic nominee, Kentucky, which was historically Democrat, and West Virginia, which we now know as Deep Red, but it went for, for Al Gore and Bill Clinton over Bob Dole, 
by 16 points. And the last time it had voted for a Republican in an open race for the presidency before 2000 was 1928. And it took nominating Al, in, Al, Smith. Al Smith, a New York Catholic, to bring out all those Baptists and Methodists and Presbyterians to vote Republican. So I said to him, here's the states that, you know, we had to make a, you know, here were the states that we had to play with. Well, it sort of got sort of odd because I said when we got to the West, there were Western states that Clinton Gore had won once or twice, Montana and Arizona. Uh, uh, in Nevada, or had won twice, we had to win all three of the states that Clinton Gore had won at least once. Plus, we thought we had a chance at Oregon because uh, Ralph Nader was on the ballot. The Republicans were in a brief moment of renaissance. They just elected a U.S. senator. They had two constitutional officers in the state. They had a majority in the state house. They were down, down one seat in the state senate. They had three of the five congressmen in the state. And Nader was on the ballot and with a real following in Portland and Eugene. So we mm -hmm. said, we got a shot at it. We eventually came within 5,500 votes of winning Oregon. Hmm. But when I said that, uh, when I'd said West Virginia, uh, Mr. Trump said, well, uh, I did really well in the primaries in West Virginia. I'll win West Virginia. And I said, yes, you will. But remember, here's why. It's, it's been trending into a Republican direction. So when we got to Oregon, he said, well, I'll win Oregon. I did really well in the primaries. I said, you, you won't win Oregon. I said, well, here's why we had a shot at it in 2000, but the state since then has gone hard left. The last time the Republicans won a statewide race was 2002. <clears throat> They're down to less than a third of the House, a third of the Senate, one out of every five congressmen, and you have no chance of winning Oregon. <clears throat> he said, well, I'll win California. <laughs> I said, no, you won't. He said, I'll win New York. I said, no, you won't, and explained why. No wonder he was so angry at you. <laughs> and so <clears throat> at that point I said, look, you're welcome to try and win those, but every day you spend trying to win a state you can't win is a day that a presidential candidate forfeits in, in, in winning in a state like, in your case, Pennsylvania or Michigan or Wisconsin or Iowa. And he looked at me and said, Iowa? I didn't do that well in the primary, in the caucuses there. I can win Iowa? And I said, yeah, you can win Iowa. I said, all those farmers out in the West who didn't like you in the caucuses, they hate her. And there are a lot of uh, blue-collar types in the eastern part of the state who are worried about their jobs. They work at Deer or Caterpillar or in small manufacturing, and they're worried about their jobs. And they're open to voting for you. So, yeah, you can win Iowa. And uh, at that point, he turned to our mutual friend and said, well, why isn't anybody in my campaign telling me this? And a couple weeks later, he went out and gave a speech, I like, at like 10 days later, and said, I, I told him, I said, you got to, you know, we had to focus on 270. And that meant that every day that we just spent outside those states was a day that was wasted, unless we had either fundraising necessities or a, a, a national message that we needed to, you know, we went, were going to the Urban League to talk about education reform. But I said, you know, every day is, is vital. And we put all of our time and all of our energy and all of our resources into our battleground state effort. So he went out and gave a speech and said, I'm going to, I got to have a path to get to 270. I'm going to put all my time and energy and effort into these states. I'm going to tell you what they are over the next, between now and the Republican convention, there are going to be 15 battleground states. And, and I'm going to be laying them out over the next couple of weeks as we get ready to go to Cleveland for the convention. But today I'm going to tell you about three of the battleground states that I'm going to focus all my time, my energy, my effort on. New York, Oregon, and California. <laughs> a few days later, the campaign announced that they were going to go to, uh, that they were going to make Connecticut a battleground state. Because, of course, this is the home of his new campaign manager, Paul Manafort. <laughs> so fortunately, by the time of the Republican convention, Reince Priebus and Kellyanne Conway and others 
had said to him, Mr. Trump, battleground states are not those. Here are the battleground states. And from the time of the convention on, they had enough discipline in the campaign to focus on those battleground states. So he, he won um, by carrying Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania by about 77,000 votes. Out of 13 million cast. Right. And, and as we now know, a lot of people didn't show up that would yeah. have otherwise voted. Right. Are those three states still the keys to his reelection? Well, I think you've got to say that if he wins two out of the three, he gets reelected, provided everything else is the same. If he loses two, two out of three, then he's got to make it up elsewhere. So, yeah, they're critical. But, but the thing about it is no election. We like to have the myth that everything comes down to Ohio or everything comes down to Florida. But you don't know that at the beginning. Right. At the end, it does come back down to the state whose electoral votes pop you over 270. Mm -hmm. But we don't know that until the end. And so, uh, you know, they, they, I think they understand they've got a, a hill to climb in those. Think about it, 20, uh, 11,000 fewer votes. Actually, it wins by Michigan by 11,000 votes, and there are 25,000 fewer votes cast in the city of Detroit. Right. You know, uh, 22,000 votes or thereabouts in Wisconsin. There are 35,000 fewer votes in the mostly black wards of Milwaukee. And there are 350,000 college students in right. Wisconsin. Oh, yeah. And uh, and she 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 may have let the let the the, the normal Democrat uh, musical groups go to Wisconsin, but she didn't go herself. And students are like everybody else; they want to see the candidate. Maybe even more so, I think. Yeah. So we've seen a number of presidents elected in in the last decades with less than a popular right. majority. Is it time to scrap the electoral college? No, I don't think so, uh, and I'll tell you why. I I think that that. Um, if we went to a popular vote, how long before we'd have a runoff? And how long would, we, would it be before we had a splintered first round? It wouldn't be two great parties. It'd be everybody who you know, thought they had enough uh, issues and enough money and enough momentum to get themselves in. And mm -hmm. we'd end up, take a look at the European democracies, which are by and large parla parliamentary democracies, but, but look at how mangled their politics are and how difficult it is for them to arrive at a functioning central state. And I think the two-party system has the advantage with the Electoral College of forcing campaigns to be fought out over large, diverse parts of our geography. And then it provides a way to heal the country at the end because we, we, you know, we sort of get hung up on that final number. Bill Clinton got 43% of the vote, same percentage of the vote that Michael Dukakis did in 1988. Mm -hmm. And yet, the fact that he had won the Electoral College is part of the process by which people say, well, you know what? I had my choice. My choice didn't win, but it's our president in our country, and I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. And I think that's really vital. Uh, so let's talk about 2020. And what do you make of the field in, on the Democratic side? Well, uh, big, way too big, uh, and put into the field way too early. I think the Democrats have made a mistake by sort of... Um, starting the process earlier. I mean, the first Democratic debate was in June. In 2016, the first Republican debate was at the end of August. Now, the difference between June, July, and August may not seem like much, but remember, that lengthens the primary process then by another quarter. So mm -hmm. that's why all these candidates got out, tended to get out in January and February of 2019 in order to get their campaigns up and going. So the process got longer and hence got more expensive. Uh, second of all, the Democrats changed their rules again, which is a mistake, mm -hmm. and uh, they are front-loading. Uh, 
2016, 24% of the delegates were chosen between the first contest, Iowa, and March 3rd. This time around, the equivalent will be 48%. So we're going to have a lot more delegates chosen at a point where the contest is going to be less settled. Mm-hmm. Third, as you know, the Democrat rules are proportional. Get 15% of the vote and you get delegates. So we're likely to see you know, a larger number of people get more delegates at the beginning because they hit that 15% margin. And then you toss in states like Minnesota's going to be early. Amy Klobuchar is going to get a bunch of delegates. California's early, so it used to be at the end. They used to be June 6th. It and New Jersey sort of were at the tail end. Now it's March 3rd. Kamala Harris is going to get a bunch of delegates. So uh, we're, we're likely to see a, a more fractured Democrat field. And then the decision on the superdelegates, I understand why they made it, mm-hmm. but they don't get to vote on the first ballot. They could get to vote on the second. So what happens if we have front-loaded primaries, more fractured field, proportionality, and we go into the first convention since 1952 without a uh, without a first ballot winner, and, and onto onto the field come 775 super delegates on ballot number two. That could be one hell of a messy contest. Yeah. So tell me uh, how the Republican Party has changed since you worked in the White House. Has it changed fundamentally, or is there these superficialities? I, I think it's changed. In, it, 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 well. It's changed. I'm not certain how permanent those changes are. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Republican Party that I that I lab- have labored in, particularly in Texas, is a party that's open to immigration. And if you look at it, if you if you talk to people, oh my God, we want to, you know, we want to build the wall and stop those people from coming in. But if you then talk to those same people and say, well, don't you think we need to do something about the Dreamers? A lot of them will nod their heads and say, yeah, we we can't send them home. This isn't our home. And when you say, look, we've got 12, 11 or 12 million people here in America, what, what about this proposition? You gotta show up and tell us you've been here. You have to prove that you were here for a couple of years, so just not taking people run across the border. You gotta show us that you kept your nose clean, that you haven't committed a crime. And then if you wanna remain here, you can either decide to stay here and work, and you get to all the protections and laws and a work permit, and, but you have to keep your nose clean. You can't commit any crimes. You've got to pay your taxes. And if you want to work the rest of your working career and then go home to the country of your, where you came from, fine. But if you want to become a U.S. citizenship, become a U.S. citizen, you've got to go to the back of the line. There are a lot of people waiting in line patiently for citizenship. And if you want to be a citizen, you've got to go behind them. But why don't we hear that from more Republican leaders? Well, you know what? Here's the deal. I talk all the time around the country. And the question comes up about immigration. And I say, what about that deal? What about that deal? And they, and, and ordinary Republicans say, I'm all for that. And why are none of the, why are few of, the, if any, of the leaders in the Congress, for example? Well, first that? of all, I would remind you that that, that they don't they, they can write pieces of legislation and they but they're not the president. They don't get to set the tone for the party generally. But they're ready to vote for that kind of thing. Remember, we almost had a deal. Uh, under President Obama, we have almost had a deal under President Trump. We, I'm confident that, that we will ultimately solve this problem. But I would remind you also, I was there in 2007, where after seven years of fighting for this, for comprehensive immigration reform, President Bush, Ted Kennedy, and John McCain, working particularly hand in glove in 2005, 6, and 7, it was Democrats who brought down the comprehensive immigration reform. We had set up a procedure, it's going to be called the Voterama, we had 94 proposals, 
people said, if I get a chance to propose something and I can get it passed, then I might be able to vote for the whole bill. Now, we would not have ended up having 94 votes, but there would have been 20 or 30 amendments that would have been voted on. And Harry Reid, for reasons that I do not understand to this day, unilaterally took upon itself to limit the amount of amendments to, to eight, four for each side. He determined what those amendments were, and Democrats who had pledged to support comprehensive immigration reform came out and voted for the killer amendments, knowing it would blow up the deal. We had to have a guest worker program. We had people like Barack Obama who sat there in the cabinet room and said, I'm for comprehensive immigration reform, vote to, kill, you know, to, to basically limit the amount of time that a guest worker program would be on the books, thereby making it not viable. For all four amendments, and we had a sufficient number of Democrats to vote for them that all four got added and brought down the bill. What was your favorite part about working in the White House? And is there anything that you regret from your yeah. time there? Yeah. Um, the best thing was I worked around people who were very smart and who wanted and were there for the right reasons. And we were led by a guy who said, you will serve the country best if you can have robust discussions about what it is we ought to do and respectful disagreements about the approaches. And at the end of the day, I'll make a decision and we will do this all in a way that you have confidence whether you agree with where I'm going or not, with the decision I make or not, you will at least think that we went about it in a, in a strong and sensible way. And so you could, you know, you had to bring your A game because everybody else was bringing their A game. And you, and you knew that the expression of your A game was not to stab somebody in the back by leaking, but by having, by trying to understand where they were coming from and hope to get them to understand where you were coming from, find areas of common agreement, find a common description of what the facts were underlined, crystallize your disagreements, crystallize the arguments in favor of whatever your approach was, put it in writing, and make that case if need be in front of the president with respect with somebody else sitting there across the, across the couch from you who had a different perspective. Mm -hmm. And that was exhilarating in many respects. And that's why if you look at the Bush White House, it's unusual. Two chiefs of staff in eight years. Average tenure of a senior White House aide is 18 months. In the Bush White House, I stayed seven years. I wish I could have stayed eight. And there were, it was routine for and people. you still look like a young man. Exactly. And there were people, well, that's because Bush understood it. He said, you're no good to me if you wear yourself out, if you burn out. So I'm going to leave the office at 530. Now, everybody knew that was a fiction. He was taking a gigantic notebook with about 150, 175 pages for, to get prepared for the next day. And he was going to be making phone calls from the from the office uh, in, that he had in the, in the White House. But what he was saying was, okay, you're not going to impress me if you're here at 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock at night, and I'm not going to impose upon you. Uh, you know, Clinton, who had a great many strengths, one of his weaknesses was I, many Clinton staffers, White House staffers, told me they would go home for dinner at 7 or 7.30. And then they go back. And then they go back because he would pop up at 10 or 11 or 12 o'clock at night and have you know the, 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 the college bull session mulling over an issue, and it wore people out. Uh, similarly, Bush said, you know, if you, got a, um, if you have to have a weekend meeting, don't feel compelled to come to the, to the White House. He said, uh, have it at your house. You've all got saves for confidential material. People will, f your staff will feel, you know, better. They don't have to dress up. And, you know, you'll, 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 I want you to have a life. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't have a life outside the White House, you're eventually going to burn out sooner rather than later inside the White House. Carl Rove. 
Thank you very much. It's been a great conversation. Well, thanks for having and me. And I know people are enjoying listening and will enjoy reading it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Tell Me More. Please subscribe and rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And to be the first to hear about new episodes, please follow Tufts University on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We'd also welcome your thoughts on the series. You can reach us at tellmemore at tufts.edu. That's T-U-F-T-S dot E-D-U. Tell Me More is produced by Anna Miller, Dave Nusher, and Katie McLeod Strollo. This episode was edited by 5 to 9 Media and Anna Miller. Web production and editing support provided by Taylor McNeil. Special thanks to the Jonathan M. Tisch College of Civic Life, the Office of the Provost, the Political Science Department, and the Tufts Republicans. Our theme music is sourced from DeWolf Music, and my name is Patrick Collins. Until next time, be well. Be well.